BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I wanted to start out with the piece that I published over at HartmanReport.com. It's titled Nomad Land, a word that was invented for the movie, exposes the middle class ripoff. Louise and I had been meaning to watch this movie for quite a while. Won all kinds of awards. Chloe Zhao, I believe is how her name is pronounced put the movie together, directed the movie, just brilliant job. Francis McDormand acts in it. It is a drama, but it is a drama as in fiction. But most of the actors in the movie are actually these people who are living in these RVs, traveling around the country, working at Amazon warehouses and cleaning toilets and and God only knows what, struggling to survive, basically. And Francis McDormand plays Fern, the uh, lead character. So it's all based on an actual nonfiction book that was published a number of years ago. I'll get to that in just a moment. It really hit me personally, and I, I don't know if you know any of your growing up had to do with this. This was sort of in my parents' generation. You know, my parents came of age in the 1930s and 40s, and and died in the early 2000s. I know that there were a lot of people who were doing the same thing that they were doing because I met them every weekend. When I was a little kid, when I was like, you know, six, seven, eight, ten years old, every weekend, or nearly every weekend, we'd hop in the back of the station wagon and we'd, and we lived in Lansing and we'd drive someplace. You know, one week it would be Owasso, another week it would be Flint, another week it would be, it would be uh, Kalamazoo, another week. And we would just, we would drive to these little towns all over central southern michigan northern michigan sometimes we'd go up to Newego and we'd and we'd from there we'd you know travel over to muskegon or up to traverse city or whatever it may be and our goal on these weekend trips was to hit as many secondhand stores salvation armies and goodwills and and some of them just you know had, had local names as many secondhand stores as possible. Because my dad and mom, I mean, yeah, this is where we got some of our clothes and things from. We were not wealthy. But mostly it was because mom and dad were collecting what they called antiques. Mom had this huge button collection. They they were looking for small stuff. And the reason they wanted small stuff was because it could fit in an RV. Mom was collecting buttons, dad was collecting postcards and stamps. They were both collecting small figurines and small pieces of art, uh, things that they thought would appreciate over time, little Hummel figurines. I mean, their house was filled with this stuff. When they died, my brother Stan spent years trying to get rid of this stuff. 
But their plan for retirement was that, you know, when dad hit, and I think it was going to be around 62 or something like that, that he had 40 years in with the tool and die shop. He had a good pension that would supplement his social security. He had health insurance that would cover him for the rest of his life, although it became basically a Medicare supplement. So they were going to buy an RV and travel all over the country. They'd always wanted throughout all the years that we were growing up. You know, occasionally we'd have vacations where we'd go someplace, but usually our vacations were just in Michigan. And they wanted to tra- they wanted to see the Grand Canyon and they wanted to see the desert in Arizona and they just, you know, they wanted to see the country and their plan for how to pay for it was that all along the way they would stop at antique stores and secondhand stores and they would be selling this stuff that they'd collected for years because it would have appreciated. Now, Dad died young because he got mesothelioma from, you know, the asbestos industry lying to him. Whole nother story, I've told it before on the air. So they never really got to experience that retirement. But there are a lot of people who are kind of doing that or who are just living in nice RVs around the country, that that whole RV living thing. That's not what this movie is (laughs) about. That's what people think about. But this movie is about people who are hanging on by their fingernails. In many cases, they are homeless, but they are not houseless. They're living in these RVs and they're sleeping in Walmart parking lots in their RVs. They migrate south and west during the winter, back north and east during the summer. And what we're seeing is that this is like the 2021 version of homelessness. I write in my piece over at harbinreport.com about how Louise and I used to live here in Portland on a house that was on a main street. You know, virtually every week we'd wake up one morning and there'd be a new RV parked out in front of the house old, beat up, kind of falling apart RVs, and sometimes we had to clean up their trash from the front yard or hose down their sewage from the street. This is like the grapes of wrath, and it raises some really interesting questions. Why is it that in the richest country in the world, we can't provide for people when capitalism fails them? The movie starts out with Fern losing her husband and then her job, and then the whole town basically goes broke. Well, why didn't we take care of those folks? They do in Europe. Why have we let our social security benefits get so badly eaten up by inflation and Reagan raising the retirement age and taxing social security benefits that people can't live on it anymore? Why is it that in America, when people lose their jobs, like we saw in this movie, Nomadland, have you seen the movie, by the way? I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Why is it that when people lose their jobs here, they also lose their health care? And they also get kicked out of college if they can't afford to pay tuition. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I mean, this does not happen in most other advanced countries. If you watch the movie, I'd love to get your thoughts on it. I just don't see people hitting rock bottom like this in other countries around the world. And I think that, you know, 40 years of Reaganism has just ripped this country apart. And by the way, I mentioned in the article that I write over at HartmanReport.com is that if you're looking for a palate cleanser after you watch Nomadland, watch Michael Moore's Where to Invade Next, which is where he travels around the country, or travels around the world looking at countries who have taken American social ideas and put them into place. Ideas that have been fought by Republicans here in the United States. Will in Salem, Oregon. Hey, Will, what's on your mind today? 
Hey, Tom. Yeah, I saw Nomadland, and I had exactly the same impression as you. Within minutes of the movie, I really I said to my, I was talking to my wife, too, and I said, this is an indictment of Reaganomics, exactly what it is. And it was an awesome movie. I urge anybody who hasn't seen it to see it. And in fact, I kind of was talking to my wife about this after the movie, and I was saying to her that, God forbid, if she were to predecease me, I hope I go first, frankly, that I very, very likely would leave our little teeny house to our daughter and buy an, an old RV and hit the road like Fern does in that movie, because I am so, I am so over capitalism. I have no idea. Yeah. I despise the system with every fiber of my body. And I, you know, well, that's the subtext of the movie, Will. I've seen similar stories in long articles, you know, long, thoughtful kind of New Yorker kind of articles, not necessarily in the in the New Yorker, but you know where people have gone and lived in in homeless tent communities, and discovered that in some of these communities, some of them are highly dysfunctional. They're filled with people who are severely mentally ill. Others are like small communities, little survival communities of rational people who are just trying to get by, literally living in tents. And that's the kind of the the secondary story of the movie. You know, the the tearjerker part of the movie is how these people are looking out for each other, how they're caring for each other, how they've created a culture, a community below the the normal economy, except that they still have to work in these Amazon warehouses, which is just backbreaking work for somebody in their 50s or 60s or 70s, or clean toilets or give blood or sell blood or whatever it may be. You're right. I understand. That's the, the very sad part of it. it. It is overall a very sad movie, I, uh, obviously. And the hopeful part of it is, the, the only hopeful part of it is that it's an escape valve. Uh, not a great one, but it's it's an escape valve from what Reaganism has brought us, which is complete yeah. poverty and, and oppression by, frankly, the 1%. And I should theoretically love capitalism. I've worked for AT&T, IBM. I've worked for Wall Street. I, I currently work for a giant transnational corporation in so theoretically, I make good money. It's all gone. I have none. I, I, I've spent, I've stopped because of overspending. Every dime I have has gone through student loans, medical debt, and basically my silly little mortgage. And I have nothing left. It yeah. frankly didn't work for me. So I have no choice at this point, you know. This is the American economy, and we should not have have to pay for student loans, and we should not have to pay for medical debt. And yeah, your mortgage should represent a store of value for you. Will, thank you. Thank you for the call, and thanks for your thoughts on this. Spot on. Jim in Las Vegas. Hey, Jim. You lived in a van? I watched the the movie, too, and uh, I didn't like it at all. It was very depressing. It was very slow. And after the two hours were up, I shook my head, and I said, what a waste of two hours. Now, okay. I, lived in, Why? I lived in an RV, an old junky RV, for one year. I traveled across the country, and I, I stayed in areas like were depicted in that movie, especially in Arizona and parts of California and parked with. Now, you said in the movie it showed people who are helping each other, but that's true of any subcategory. The homeless people here in Las Vegas, they help each other. The, sure. Uh, the that was my point. Pardon me? That was my point. Facing adversity, people will form community and people will form support groups. 
Right. Okay. Well, then I misunderstood it <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. But I was so I thought the movie was very, very depressing and very, very slow. And while I was watching it, I kept thinking, well, it's gonna something's gonna happen, and it's gonna get better. No, uh, it's a, this is a slice of life movie, Jim. I mean, you know, there there are different genres. There was no great inciting incident and 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 crisis and climax where everybody's trying to climb to the top of the hill, but. But, you know, I get your criticism. I get your critique. Uh, and thank you for the call. Lee in Los Angeles. Hey, Lee, your thoughts? First of all, I'm glad that you actually made that point about No Man Land. I felt a lot of people missed the storytelling, which was blending together of the movie and actually partial documentary, which I thought was interesting well, bringing in. And in fact, if I could add, Lee, forgive the interruption, while Frances McDermott, I think is her name, was, you know, the principal actor in the movie, who, who is an actor, you know, with great credentials and a solid actor. Most of the people who were in the movie were actually people living in their vans. They're, they're, they're you know, not quite homeless. They're, they're the van people, um, you know, playing themselves or in some cases playing other characters. And I thought that was kind of cool, too. Back to you, Lee. Yeah. Oh, no, uh, the gentleman that runs the convention, I looked him up, I forgot his name. He has a very interesting story, the one that runs the seminars uh, for van mm-hmm. living. Uh, yeah, he's yeah. a real person. Um, yeah, also yeah on YouTube. Was, um, yes, I, I felt the movie did miss a little bit, though, when it came to, but I guess it was probably more about the uh, older, middle-aged uh, people who we'd assume would be retired. There was a little portion that talked about millennials, but um, I think one or two of the gentlemen that called earlier did seem to be in the younger category that it is becoming a choice for millennials to already adapt to van life early on. Um, And it it is interesting how even among uh, the young people, they've created their own uh, little communities for college students, I believe. Uh, it's not unusual for people to live in their cars in order to cut down on their expenses. So it's almost like it's not even surprising to hear that people do this anymore because you see it across the board. Uh, With the homeless communities, I live in Los Angeles, there's so many and there's so many different categories of unhoused people. Uh, Mm -hmm. But the one thing I can definitely say is they look out for each other. I have... Uh, donated, given items, and just I turn around and suddenly it's being shared with random people. So um, they do look out, but there was another thing I don't just, side note, if you were aware of it, that there are studies, or perhaps I learned it from you, that say that in times of difficulty, people actually come together. So the larger these communities grow, the more likely they actually are to be protective of one another. Um, not to cause problems within the community. It's complete opposite yeah. of, of what... Generally speaking, believe. the one thing that disrupts that, and you're, right, you're absolutely right, Lee, and, and there's a lot of sociology on that. Basically, people form tribes, and tribes are protective things. I mean, this is in our DNA going back to before we were you know, yeah. probably standing upright. But the one thing that will blow that up is the Donald Trump in the community, is when there's a psychopath with a powerful personality and a physical presence that is capable of intimidating other people, who takes that over? I heard a story of a homeless community here in Portland where that happened. I'm guessing that that's not all that uncommon, that you know, from time to yeah. time you'll see homeless communities being just totally destroyed by a mentally ill person. Of the category of Donald Trump, by a sociopath, by a person who's charming and charismatic and powerful and yet 
absolutely willing to destroy other people in order to get what they want, whether it's sexual favors or whether it's more food or whether it's a better tent or whether it's whatever it may be. Yeah. Lee, and I would say that ahead. was the one thing the movie, sorry, just to sum up, that was the one thing the movie didn't show, which it's fine, was the abuse, we'll say societal abuse and the way people look at these right. people when they walk into businesses, when their car is on the side of the road, which is secondary, of course. But yes, there's tremendous yeah. amount of social abuse as well. Yeah, or or the crisis that they experience when they get seriously sick. I mean, they they didn't go there either, and and these people are of the age where people start getting cancer, they start getting, you know, you know, disabled by things like arthritis and stuff like this, and that's all tough stuff too. Thanks, Lee. Dale in Springfield, Missouri. The nomad land lifestyle isn't really new, and it's pretty much the story of my life. In the late fifties and sixties, I grew up in an eight by thirty foot travel trailer towed behind a three quarter ton flatbed while my dad built the interstates. We traveled from job to job, north in the summer, south in the winter. I, I went to twenty three different schools the first six years. I learned wow. how to check myself into school and back out again a couple of months later. I wouldn't trade that experience for the world, but I wouldn't want my kids to go through it either. Forty years later, here I am after my last divorce, and I now live in a 35-foot RV behind a three-quarter ton truck. When I want to move, (laughs) I move. And I always have a yard outside my door that I don't have to mow. Well, I guess there's an upside, Dale. I I guess there is. You know, it's uh, Dennis Weaver was an old friend of mine. He wrote a book called uh, The Whole World is a Stage. I wrote the foreword for it. And he tells the story of growing up during the Dust Bowl in Oklahoma and him and his mother and his, and his sister having to flee Oklahoma for Oregon to do strawberry picking. He ultimately ended up in Los Angeles and got a job as an actor. But his book is kind of like your life, or at least the first five years of his life, or not the first five years, but the, you know, the early ones of his story. Dale, thanks for sharing that. I appreciate it. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. I think on the one hand, we risk romanticizing this. On the other hand, we risk over-freaking out about it. But this is real stuff now. Gary at Overland Park, Kansas. Hey, Gary, what's on your mind? Yeah, Tom, I loved your reference to Nomadland and the Grapes of Wrath. And it reminded me of the 1920s Andrew Mellon, the billionaire secretary of the Treasury whose policies caused the Great Depression. Uh, Over 12 years of Republican presidents from 1920 to 1932, they cut the top income tax rate from 77 percent to 24 percent and slashed the federal estate tax, leading to the grapes of wrath and the original nomad land. You're right. And we used to call, you know, what we're calling now homeless people, we used to call hobos. That's correct. That's correct. And there were homeless camps in Washington, D.C. and around the country. Uh, If you do a Google search for them, you'll see pictures of them all over the Internet. And FDR had to dip out of it. And his Federal Reserve Chairman, Mariner Eccles, described it this way. He said a giant suction pump had by 1929 to 1930 drawn into a few hands an increasing portion of currently produced wealth. The other fellows could only stay in the game by borrowing. When their credit ran out, the game stopped. 
Wow. And that was a brilliant description of what was going on, particularly on Wall Street at the time. And that led to all these, I mean, you know, Steinbeck was a great chronicler of that time, but there are others as well. And it led to this whole thing that FDR was able to fix. Hey, thank you very much, Gary, for that. Thanks for the call and thanks for the quote. That was a great one. Mick in Seattle. Hey, Mick, what's up? To a person who has chosen to live under their means, and I live in my van since 2006 when I got laid off as a teacher. Also, I was, I was close to retiring. So now, thanks to the last two presidents who have given out free money, I'm using it to start my new mobile soup kitchen called Food Not Bombs Soup Kitchen. Oh, cool. Yes, I'm going to use that money. I'm going to walk my talk. And I've been going up and down the West Coast from San Luis Obispo all the way to Seattle. And uh, right now I'm fixing my car so that I can uh, go back on the road. The deal is, though, that living under your means is a choice. I think in the land of consumerism, we need to start doing that. We need to start saying to ourselves, what can we really, truly do without? And um, food isn't one of them. Food is the pathway to peace. And you can tell that when you sit around a dinner table, everybody shuts their mouths and listens more than they talk because they're eating. So I sense that the movie brings out the romanticism, yet it brings out the truth. And I see people who are physically challenged, mentally challenged, and they are beautiful people. People cannot profile them like police do criminals. We need mm-hmm. to start being treating others as we wish to be treated. Yeah. Thank you, Mick. And good luck on your soup kitchen. That's great. I'm glad to hear about what you're doing. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Richard in Naples, Florida. Hey, Richard, what's on your mind today? 
I just want to let you know that my wife and I, uh, she is from the Bahamas. We were sailing. My plan was to sail around the world. We met, I met her in the Bahamas, and she came back with me. I've owned 30 acres here in Naples, right in the center of the now most populated area of Collier County. We have uh, owned this for 50 years, and uh, I am now looking, she and I are, are, are looking to help folks who have the nomad land situation because we know what that's like. When you're sailing, you have to do a lot of that as well. You have to look out for each other. We're into a whole new era, I believe, in terms of how human beings have to start to look at nature and how they have to start to look at each other. Either that or we fail completely and we'll lose the human species. I mean, that's the way I'm seeing it. So you're doing something with your 30 acres here? Well, trying to. Uh, the counties make it very difficult. Uh, they're looking to put a 250-foot uh, communication tower right smack dab next to it in violation of the variance laws. They don't seem to care about that. Uh, we won the case, and they, right. they, the, the guy ends up at, you know, the, the hearing. But how is, is that going to affect, are, are you going to let people come camp on your land, basically? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're going you're gonna to need some infrastructure for that. You're going to need water. You're going to need septic. You're going to need waste. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, you're, you're working on yeah. those things. We're working on those things, yes. That's great. That's great. Well, you know, if you reach the point where you're open for business, give me a shout back. Put up a website, you know, where people can find it and give me a shout back and I'd be glad to promote it. Richard, thank you for the call. Good on you. Ken in West Lynn, Oregon. Hey, Ken, thanks for listening to SiriusXM. What's up? Well, Tom, I have to agree with uh, you know all your previous callers, but I mean, if you really want to consider uh, conspiracy theories, you really have to look at the ideas of Milton Freeman, uh, uh, Laffer, uh, and all the neoliberalism. They've all oh, that's been, where it all you know, started. Yeah, exactly, and it's just been propagated by uh, you know a, a class that wants control and domination, and that's really kind of the long and short of it. And they really don't care about anything other than um, expanding their own wealth and privilege. Yeah, and that was uh, Friedman's thing: was you know, greed is good. I mean, you know, the 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 movie with Michael Douglas in it, Wall Street, uh, just kind of epitomized the the Milton Friedman worldview that Ronald Reagan adopted and has been the 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 central marching theme of the Republican Party for forty years now. Wayne in Las Vegas. Hey, Wayne, what's up? Hi, I just wanted to comment on some of the themes of the movie Nomadland. I had to watch it twice because the first time. It is uncomfortable, and I think that some people who are used to going to movies, they love the Marvel comics, the action pack. but I tell my friends, it's a wonderful movie, but it's about as exciting as going to the museum to look at the paintings and pictures. Uh, it's mm. not exciting. Yeah, it's a slice of life movie. Boy, is it beautiful. Uh, yeah. And I think I can know how to tie in the Amazon portion of the film, how I took it as, in the beginning... She loses all these institutions, her family, her city, her job, all these things that people think they can live and they can count on is taken away from them. And then it goes into the generosity is a very strong theme throughout this movie. Even the people who uh, live this life, they're willing to give somebody else anything they have just to help them. And I saw that mm. in being what Amazon was to the, the the role of Amazon, in that 
she gets seasonal work. Here's a little generosity. We'll help you a little bit, you know, if mm. you want to do this backbreaking work. But we're not going to be there for you the whole time. And that's how I saw it. Right. Which raises the question, is this generosity or is this exploitation? And I, th- and I think it's particularly ironic that I watched, Louise and I watched the movie on Amazon Prime. You know, with it, with it, right. it opens with a giant Amazon penis, you know. It's, so your sense of it was that Amazon came out as kind of a hero in this? No, I thought of it more as a reflection building on that theme of generosity, because we saw the generosity of the people living this type of life, uh, that, that part where she really doesn't have anything, but she's willing to give up the lighter to that other person. And those of you who have seen the movie know that. And I took right. that, I was trying to figure out where does Amazon come in outside of helping her out. But I then realized it's more of a generosity thing. Is yeah. this a cunt? Oh, another thing was that the, one of the characters in this movie is America. It's it was the scenery and the beauty of it and the vast. Oh yeah, you're right. Help you're right. bring people to the realize that that loneliness, that uncomfortableness that the audience feels in the loneliness, and looking, you know, for anything that they can give. And here's a little bit here. Here's a little bit here. And oh yeah, corporations will give you a little bit too, but we're not going to be there in the long run. We're just going to give you there you a go. little generosity here. Lewis in Los Angeles. Hey, Lewis, what's on your mind today? Hey, man. Well, I've been listening to you for a long time, and uh, I totally agree with you on the uh, the idea that Reagan Reaganomics has screwed us royally. So I'm way in your camp on that. I live in Los Angeles. I live in a really good neighborhood in Los Angeles. You know where Beachwood Canyon is? I don't. It's the street you drive up if you want to look at the Hollywood sign. I mean, the Hollywood sign is right in oh, the center okay. of your vision. Yeah, you I know. I know, I know where you're talking about. Then, yeah, it is a nice. Yeah, tourists come here, and the, the housing values up here are very high. Rent is very high. I have a good deal, but I pay a lot of rent too. Literally three blocks from here, there is huge homeless tent cities going on. Huge. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, hundreds of people living in tents yeah. and garbage everywhere and everything. And I'm not mad at those people. I'm mad at the government for letting that happen. I'm not mad yep. at those people. What what are they supposed to do? You know, but I'm thinking, yep. you know, and then you drive two more blocks and there's another one and you drive a few more blocks and there's another one. I mean, they're all over the place. There's oh, they're all over Portland, too. Right in this neighborhood. Any kind of public land here in Portland. I mean, like near all, all the on ramps and off ramps from the highway, that's city owned land or state owned land. So they don't get evicted from there. You know, it's not private land. So they so they're setting up all over the city. It's like this is not their fault. <laughs> I mean, this is not. No, they, they are not to I'm blame for is, this. This is how you got the French Revolution, man. I mean, all you have to do is watch yeah. Les Miserables or whatever you want to watch or read, you know, uh, Tale of Two Cities or whatever. You know, when people have nothing to lose and when they're that down and out, eventually they just get mad. And it's like, I'm going to die anyway. What the hell? And you can you can seriously have a revolution. I think the the uh, the uh, poli- the politicians in Washington, you know, the Democrats are trying to do a decent job, but they're not perfect. The Republicans just don't care. And it's like, guys, it was the French government not caring about their poor people that eventually overturned them because you can't have this many people with this little to lose. See what I mean? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean that you, was agree, arguably or? brought on by a famine. There was a, a shortage of bread. The, shortage, the, the wheat crop, I think, had failed, but, or in part. What's interesting to me, Lewis, is that the people who are talking about revolution in the United States are not the people living in the homeless camps. 
And in fact, even the nomad land thing is, is mostly a, a white phenomena. And they're not talking about revolution either. But it's these white guys with guns who have enough money to buy, you know, a, a, a two or $3,000 gun, fly around the country and, uh, and, you know, do their cosplay. It's just like totally weird to me that the guys who well, are not... Me, I understand that point because, you know, they, they seem to... They, they, they kind of, these guys want to live in a movie. You know, they watch Marvel comics yeah. movies and they want to be one of the superheroes and tote their gun and have a war. And, and they're, you know, they're, that, that exists and it's, it's very negative in our society. But I'm saying when these homeless people suddenly get a fire lit under them because they just literally, and if some firebrand comes along who knows how to make speeches to them and stand on a pedestal and say, you know, enough's enough, you know, that's where it starts. Yeah. Well, we'll see. I'm getting played we'll off. see, Lewis. <laughs> yeah. Good talking to you. But you will see. I didn't mean to dismiss that. My point was that I think it's a lot harder to communicate en masse to homeless people than it is to middle-class people on Facebook who are hoarding guns. But, you know, I, that was my point. you. Some middle class, I, th I think this is absolutely fascinating, some middle class families will have a tax rate of zero this year or less. A tax rate of zero. Um, this is, you know, because of the, uh, if you make less than $75,000 a year. And keep in mind, of course, the, the Trump tax cuts set up a massive tax break and, you know, the 83, I think, percent of it or 87 percent of it went to the top one percent and, and big corporations. But the rest of it was for average working Americans. Remember that? You know, average working Americans are getting billions in tax cuts. But the tax cuts for average working Americans in the Trump tax cuts phase out over 10 years. So that, you know, by by the end of this decade, they're going to be zero. So this year. From the Trump tax cuts, people are, people's taxes should be going up. Biden blew that up with the American Rescue Plan and the Democrats. Not a single, not one Republican vote in the House or the Senate. Although Kevin McCarthy is now sending out tweets and emails and letters to all of his constituents saying, look at this, cool, we got some help for the restaurants. You know, they got, and, and, and uh, there's a whole bunch of Republicans who are like, oh, look at this, wonderful, we're there. Federal government is here for you, we're doing this. Right. And all Biden is suggesting on people making $400,000 a year or more is that their taxes go up to less than they were just a couple of years ago. I mean, he's not proposing to roll back all of the Trump tax cuts. He's not proposing to roll back any of the Bush tax cuts. He's not proposing to roll back any of the Reagan tax cuts. I think, frankly, they should all be rolled back if we want to have a decent America. But no, he's, 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 uh, he's saying, no, we're not going to do that. Valerie in San Diego. Hey, Valerie, you wanted to weigh in on it? Yeah, I did. Um, I called you quite a while ago when I was living in my RV. At the moment, I'm not. And I um, have a little bit of a different experience. And I know that they covered a certain 
segment of the, the homeless people, but you got to remember what I said, that my problem was that I was on disability. I'm still on disability. And essentially, there's no such thing as affordable homes for, or, you know, affordable places to live for people on disability if you're living on only a 1000 or less a month. Right. And so that didn't get covered. And, and I'm watching her loading those potatoes, and my back was hurting just watching that. I'm mm-hmm. going, oh, my God, we can't, we can't work. I mean, I saw her do all sorts of work. We can't do that. You know, if you're on well, disability, in- you don't have that choice, that opportunity. Yeah, I- yeah, there's some mention of this in the movie, but it's a big piece of the book. You know, this this movie is actually based on a nonfiction book. And in the book, there's talk about how one of the things that the communities were doing were helping people out with, you know, sharing painkillers and teaching uh, techniques for for, uh, you know, physical therapy and stuff so that you could undo the damage done to you by working in that Amazon warehouse, all that, all those repetitive strain injuries and things. Um, but uh, Valerie, uh, excellent point. Uh, excellent point. Thank you very much for the call. Kevin in Terre Haute, Indiana. Kevin, you wanted to respond to uh, Dan, to Dan Mitchell, our, our uh, conservative about taxes. Uh, yeah, um, I listened. I listened to him, and you could tell that that he was a one hundred percent advocate for the status quo. And uh, you know, oh, Europe is worse off than we are. How lucky we are! You know, uh, don't change nothing. But I would just want to ask you. You know, personally, I think that if a person uh, that runs for office any place in America, if you can't show proven results in a two-year time frame that you're helping uh, reduce poverty, you're helping reduce the need for food stamps, you're helping with affordable uh, 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 or for housing, uh, health care, uh, you know, uh, just, just the basic needs to make life a little better for the average person. You know, if you can't do that in two years, you shouldn't be be even allowed to run for office because uh, in almost the time that it takes lightning to flash, you know, and yet in two years uh, uh, time frame, every two years we have an election, none of these problems go away and they don't have to be held accountable for them and they get to be able to run for office again whenever they don't do nothing. Yeah, I get your point, Kevin, and I completely agree with it. I I, I think even beyond that, that, um, you know, we've given the Republicans 40 years now to prove that trickle-down economics, that uh, supply-side economics is somehow magically going to build the middle class. And instead, what we've seen is this absolutely screaming explosion of the number of billionaires and the amount of wealth they have. Um, and the middle class has been wiped out. So I'm, I'm with you. Bruce in Petaluma, California. Hey, Bruce, what's on your mind this morning? Hi, Tom. Uh, this is a great program. And the nomad land kind of mm-hmm. lifted a veil of what's really available to work for and how much you can work for in this country. Um, I think it, it showed that the, the number of jobs that are available are very, very minimal, low-paying jobs. They don't even pay you enough to live in a place. I live in California, which is very expensive. And if it wasn't for a, a service that has developed here that helps people uh, mm. low income, 
I would be not living in this state anymore. I'd have to move on. I, I wouldn't know where right now. I've been here most of my life. And uh, right. I, I, I worked in a factory when I was a kid. I was going to school, and I got a job in uh, Evinrude Motors factory. And the people that I was working with, all these guys were complaining all the time about their job. They all had a summer home up at the lake, you know, whatever that was. They all were buying yeah. a new home. They were buying a car. I mean, they were living really well and beefing and whining about their job. Yeah. The whole that was my dad's friends, you know, who worked at Fisher Body and General Motors and, you know, the neighborhood I grew up in. It was, you know, lower middle class, white Lansing. And um, but they, I didn't hear so many complaints. But, you know, uh, you know, several of the house, several of the people in the, on our on our block had a, had a little cabin up on Houghton Lake. And and, uh, you know, they, they everybody bought a new car every year or two. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Bruce. It's uh, yeah. that is no living- longer America. No, and they were they were they were not happy about it. And I, you know, I traveled in Europe and I saw how those people live. I thought, you know, they're living a reasonable life. And Americans mm-hmm. that came there were expecting a lot. And they were embarrassing because of their uh, brazenness and kind of unsympathetic um behavior about reality. You know, it's a, they had yeah. a few bucks extra and they spent it like, you know, look at me. And it didn't impress me at all. I, my friend and I, that were traveling, tried not to look like Americans because we were so embarrassed about the behavior. Yeah, of our yeah. The, the ugly Americans, yeah, is a cliche because it, it's actually real. Bruce, thank you. Thanks for sharing your story with us. It's a good one. John in San Francisco. Hey, John, what's up? Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. Hey, um, before I get to the subject, uh, I say happy May 4th because... Uh, May 4th, 1945, uh, my mother's uh, turning 90 this year, and she still, to this day, puts on May 4th, puts a candle in the window for the vic- victory in Denmark. Um, oh, wow. And uh, Okay. Yeah, yeah. And they do that in Norway, too. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and Evinrude just went out of bank, just went into, uh, just closed uh, six months ago, hmm. I heard. Wow. Anyway, um, my I lived with my auntie and uncle in uh, Denmark and studied uh, uh, preparatory university school there. And my uncle uh, was the uh, manufacturer of a large foundry in Denmark, France, and England. And when he uh, would complain about his taxes, it was 74%. But the kicker that I couldn't, you know, I couldn't uh, help him with was he also got taxed 74% of his interest on his money in the bank. And that really ticked him off. So he would say, I get the tax 150%. You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. But he was one of the richest people in Denmark, right? I mean, if right. he owned all these factories. He sold his company to his uh, employees and left Denmark for a few years and yeah. tried to retire to Florida and then came back and, and uh, came back to socialized medicine in Denmark. And passed yeah. away recently. Yeah, but uh, yeah. that's that's how they lived, and everybody everybody was so happy in that town. It was amazing, and that country is, you know. It, well, I mean, I, you I, know, if you know that if you get sick, you're going to be taken care of, no matter what, no matter yeah. how bad it is. If you know that if you get old, you're going to be taken care of. If you know that if you are, you know you lose your home, you're going to be taken care of. If you know that if you want to, you know, advance yourself by going to college or trade school. 
you know, that's going to be taken care of. You're never going to have student debt. Um, you can start a family. You can build a family. I mean, what's not to like? Yeah, your refrigerator right. might be a little smaller. But, but you know, the store down, you know, right uh, on the street in front of your house has fresh food every day. Right. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, they shopped every day. And they go to the cheese shop, the bread shop, the vegetable store. Yeah. You know, they, they had... <laughs> there yeah, everything is fresh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If it's a day yeah. and a half old, it's it's over the counter. It's over the hill. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it really is a different lifestyle. And yes, it's a little more modest in much parts of Europe, in many parts of Europe, including where I was living in Germany. A little more modest than here in the United States. But I'd say a hell of a lot happier, and people weren't, you know, uh, working the insane hours, and and they did have a union to represent them, and they took off weekends and. Man, I don't want to, you know, hyper-idealize Europe. I, Europe certainly has its troubles. But to say that, uh, you know, America with a social security system that's been underfunded since the 80s and, uh, you know, and no social safety net, you know, really is, is crazy. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. John in Cumberland, Maryland. Hey, John, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? Hey, greetings, Tom. I'm a uh, longtime listener and an occasional caller. And what I'm calling about is a comment about uh, my experience in an early nomad land lifestyle. We used to call it mobile homelessness. And uh, how I got into it was uh, 25 years ago when I lost my job at the age of 45, uh, I really wasn't fit to do anything else. And so uh, my life really kind of fell apart. I traveled out west, looked up a friend. Through living out there, I met a guy who was already in this mobile homeless lifestyle. I traveled all around Indian country. I had a serious religious experience up there at the Four Corners region. Went down to Mexico, learned to be a silversmith in San Miguel de Allende. But I'll tell you, living that mobile homeless lifestyle is not easy. Uh, it's really taxing on your intellectual resources. It's really taxing on having to figure out your life basically every day you're on the road. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's really not for everybody. Uh, and back yeah. when I was doing it, you know, there weren't big communities to be part of. So I enjoyed doing it. I got a lot out of it, but it was not, you know, as depicted in the film. I can tell you that. Well, and if you're 45, it's a whole different thing than trying to do it if you're 65. 
you know, and, yeah. and your body yeah. is just not working the way it used to. And, and uh, <laughs> you know, he says this, his arm is in a sling. Um, you know, so, so uh, yeah, I, you know, I totally get your point. Have you kept in touch with the people that were living that lifestyle? Or did you, I mean, was there any community at all that you formed there? Or was this mostly uh, John goes on his, uh, his version of Jack Kerouac's On the Road? You know, Travis with Charlie, you know, Steinbeck and, and yeah. some of those others, yeah. you know, like that uh, from that era. But, you know, I'm 70 now. A lot of these guys are dead. But uh, mm-hmm. one thing I wanted to leave you with, since we talk about socialism in America is about, is a quote that I'm, I'm bringing to your show from Steinbeck. And mm-hmm. Steinbeck said, the reason socialism never took root in America was because the majority of the poor regarded themselves as temporarily embarrassed millionaires. You're right. That's an old one too. Oh, yeah, yeah, and that's a goodie. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's been applied to Republicans. You know, the average Republican thinks of himself as a temporarily embarrassed is kind of a phrase from the '30s. But uh, one lottery ticket away from, or one lucky break away from being a billionaire, and therefore we've got to look out for the billionaires because hey, one day you might be one too. And yeah, you know, I think, I think that, uh, that I thought that uh, you know, like uh, more uh, you know, possible fifty years ago. But I think more and more of the population is seeing that the game is just too rigged for that anymore. Oh yeah, oh yeah. You know, during the Reagan era, there was that show, The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. You know, very rarely did they talk about, well, yeah, this guy inherited all his money, or this guy. You know, how very, very difficult it is to actually acquire the kind of money to have the kind of home that I'm forgetting his name now, uh, but you know that guy, the, the lifestyle, the rich and famous guy, he, he died a couple of years ago, that he would want to come visit your house. John, thanks. Thanks for sharing your story with us. More food for thought as it goes. Cindy in Houston. Hey, Cindy, thanks for sitting on hold so long. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry to, you know, it's worked out that way. What's on your mind today? This will tie to me what you're speaking about kind of like all together. The problem in our country, of course, is the inequality. And the problem that I see is people will say that Bernie Sanders is a, he's a social, he's, he's with Russia, he's a communist. And it's really sad. If you go back to FDR, when you go back and you look at, uh, did a little bit of research, and FDR, you will see that when FDR became president, it was during a time that we needed help. It was during the Great Depression. When FDR um, became president, he was called a communist. He, um, even oh, yeah. the Republicans at that time, you know, it was, it was more like um, FDR cannot become president, right? But what he did, he was such a great president that he lasted, what, four terms. And that's the reason now why today we have a term two-year, I mean, a four-term um, president was because of FDR. And right. so to me, the problem is... Because the Republican it's, response it's, to FDR. Exactly. Exactly. And if people, the problem is, is that um, they did not want Bernie Sanders to be president, not the Democratic Party. And, of course, not the Republican. Um, in 2016, I was a delegate for Bernie Sanders, and um, I went to um, San Antonio, Texas. And I saw the Democratic Party take Bernie Sanders because they wanted Hillary Rodham Clinton, and they literally stepped on him. And I didn't realize that that could even happen. I mean, I finally became awake at that time and realized that, oh, my God, we're in a mess. 2020 comes around. And our advantage, of course, is that more and more people are beginning to understand who is Bernie Sanders, um, what is his message. 
And it's just scary at the same time because the problem is awareness and education. If people can go back in time and look at, as an example, in our country today, it is hard for a young adult to go, and go, to go get an education. My daughter needs um, need to get some medical care done yesterday. She could barely afford it. She has a loan on um, that she cannot go back to school now because they're holding her transcripts right now until she pays her $8,000 loan. So when you look at our, our country and we're going, we're going downhill. The middle class mm. is shrinking. We're not going up. It's socialism for the rich. That's what we have today. And hopefully that's ending. I mean, you now have Joe Biden actually using Bernie Sanders language. You know, healthcare should be a right, not a privilege. He's not supporting all of Bernie's programs yet, but I think he's moving in that direction. And Bernie has had a huge influence on this. He deserves a huge thank you from all of us for everything he did. And Elizabeth Warren as well, although Bernie was there first. 11 years every single Friday on this show, among other things, pitching the story. So, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Cindy. And, I've, and I think that finally, finally, the things that Bernie has been saying that have always been mainstream, they have always been supported by the majority of Americans. That's why Donald Trump stole a bunch of Bernie's rhetoric when he ran for president and help him win. He was going to bring jobs home from China. He was going to give everybody in the country free health care. Donald Trump campaigned on Bernie stuff. And now it's normal. It's a, such a great thing. Jonathan in Portland. Hey, Jonathan, what's up? I wanted to uh, destroy the myth that America's government's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The fact is that it's been getting smaller since the founding of the country. We, among uh, 34 OECD nations, have the highest population to representative ratio in the world. Uh, we have one voting member in the House for every 747,000 Americans. Now, if you compare that to Germany, um, they uh, and our, our House, which has 435 members, the Bundestag has 709 members. That ratio is 458,000 per uh, population, per voting member. Mm-hmm. If we were to go back to the 1930s ratio in the United States, we would have to have 1,156 House members. That's according to the Pew Research in in 2018. I've spent a lot of time in Scandinavia. I've lived there for two or three years, been all throughout. The bottom line is that they don't lie to each other. If you want to have a successful nation, tell the truth. And if you want to be able to tell the truth, you have to be able to read and you have to be able to think. Everyone there can read. It's a country filled with engineers and scientists. It's very hard to BS one another. And they've had many years living in poverty and destitution, and they decided that at one point they've had enough of it, and they were not going to lie to each other, and they were not going to have wars. Sweden hasn't had a war for 400 years, 400 years, and no war. That's why those countries are doing better. You look at countries like Taiwan that don't lie to each other, which is why they survive. We lie to each other, which is why we're dying. I mean, that's the bottom line. We don't have education in this country. We have advertising. That's what we've replaced it with. Back about five, six years ago, Louise and I spent uh, either a week or two weeks in Copenhagen, Denmark, doing this show live from the studios of Danish Radio. Danish Radio is kind of their equivalent of PBS, you know, or BBC. And they were kind enough to loan us a radio studio to use for three hours a day. And 
it was completely independent of anything Danish Radio was doing. We were basically just renting a studio from them. But because their producer was working with us, the word was kind of spreading around the studio about the kind of debates and discussions that I was having. You know, it, it was all in English, obviously. It was my American radio program. And so they had me on uh, this Q&A show that they have on Danish radio. It's an English, it, they, they did it in English language. I mean, most people in Denmark speak English as well as Danish. And so they did it in English and it was an hour show and regular Danes called up and, you know, asked Tom Hartman a question, right? Ask this American talk show host a question. And I remember this person calling and saying, so in the United States, are you trying to tell me that it is possible for a family to go broke, to lose their home because somebody in their family got sick? And I'm like, yeah, not only is it possible, but it happened 600,000 times last year. And the next call was like, no, no, you, you, you've got to be one of these crazy Americans who's just making this up. That's not possible. Why doesn't America revolt? And I'm like, I don't know why we don't revolt, but I'm telling you the truth. And then the third caller was like, you know, another, another person going, how is that even possible? I mean, how, 600,000 people, why aren't they burning down the cities? And I'm like, because they think that's how it's always supposed to be. And then another person calls up and goes, you know, yeah, I visited America. I was an exchange student back 15 years ago when I was, you know, a teenager in high school. And, it, you know, Hartman's telling the truth. <laughs> and it was like these days, I mean, for a whole hour, this was the main topic. There's, you know, there were other things that we talked about, you know, including education. But the, the, their minds were blown. I mean, it was just their minds were blown by this, Jonathan. And, well, I, uh, I, I, you know, I and I think I probably could have done the same show in any country in Europe and the same result would have happened. Well, con conversely, Americans can't believe that human beings actually can live in a decent and civilized and reasonable way. You see, Republicans attack yeah. education all the time. My mother was an educator, and she spent her life teaching me what education means, and it does not mean going to vocational school, which is much most universities amount to. What education means is learning how to be a human being. That's what I used to call it a liberal always, education. One of the things I heard all the time in Scandinavia, how bored they were living in Scandinavia because it was so safe. I mean, that was their complaint. That was their complaint, <laughs> how bored they were because it was so safe. I'll take it! I'll take, I'll take it. it. Jonathan, I, gotta move. I, I have to move along. I mean, we've got a, a board full of callers here, but thank you. Thank you for sharing your story. Martin in Atlanta. Hey, Martin, your thoughts. Well, Dan was comparing the size of refrigerators. I think that pretty much rums it up in a, in a nutshell because, you know, I lived in America 40 years, and then I went to Europe for three years to work, and I came back. I grew up like my parents believing that we needed the biggest refrigerator filled with food till you couldn't put anything else in there, half of which would go bad and get thrown out before we could use it. And uh, when I went to Europe, you know, I had a small dorm-sized refrigerator in my apartment, but I, I found quickly how nice it was to go to the corner market every day after work to pick up what I was going to have for dinner that night. So I'd go to the store four or five times a week and meet the neighbors and talk to people. And there was like no food waste. I ate healthier, fresh food. Mm -hmm. There was diversity from the food. Mm -hmm. I mean, a supermarket in Europe would be something the size of what we have here called Aldi, which is like a large drugstore-sized building. It's not a super gigantic place where we throw away right. half of the food. 
And that, in a nutshell, kind of, you know, gives you the comparison between the European lifestyle and ours. I mean, we, we store our hot water in these 100-gallon tanks that we keep hot all day, all night, whether we're using the water or not. Wasting electricity. The large refrigerator wastes electricity. We are driven to be massive consumers, and we end up buying more stuff than we ever need, and we're just trained to do it. You know what? The sign of success that you can throw away a hundred dollars worth of food a week, or that you right exactly. Spend- That's the standard of living that, that Dan was talking about. The much vaulted American standard of living. Spot on, Martin. Martin, thank you very much for the call. Rob in Chico, California. Hey, Rob. Nomad Land. Yeah, I did not see the movie, um, so I say that as a, a disclaimer. It's more of a question about the general idea of progressivism, and in the movie, I suppose. How do you hold what choices you make in life? How does that fit into all the rights and services that you're entitled to in life? I mean, well, the hero Fern what? in the movie lived in a town that was basically a one-company town, and that company, first of all, her husband had died, and then so she's a widow and she's working full time and just you know getting by. And then the company cl- closes and the town, I mean, they literally took away the zip code, right? Again, this is, this is a novel, but it's based on a real, you know, on a nonfiction book. And so she can't have her house anymore. She can't afford her house anymore. And so she gets this little camper and goes on the road searching for work. In any other developed country in the world, she wouldn't have to worry about her health care. She wouldn't have to worry, you know, she didn't have student loans, but some of the people she met along the way did. I'm missing what you're saying, Rob, and we only have 20 seconds. Let me give it to you to say. Sure. I've always been curious in a world, what does personal responsibility to a progressive, because I'm not a progressive, quote unquote progressive. How does personal responsibility for all the choices you make, the bad choices you make in many cases, Do we just forget that? Well, you suffer the consequences of your bad choices, Rob. Personal responsibility has become a phrase that Charles Koch and his friends, the billionaires on the right, have used to say, hey, you're on your own, Charlie. It's not my responsibility to help you out at all. You know, sadly, but that's that's. That's what it, what it is. To Tom Hartman, visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. In other words, don't expect me to pay taxes so that you can have health care. And, you know, these are choices that countries make. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.